Hi, Leah. Welcome back, everyone, to Outstanding, Outstanding in, in a field. field. We this, almost had that time together. Yes, we did. This time, our field was the Ogden Botanical Gardens in spring. Mm-hmm. So we went out to learn about our natural environment, but figure out what we can learn about it in basically our own backyard. Yes. Uh, specifically, we're interested in bees. There's What's a, the buzz? Yes, there's a lot of buzz about bees lately. You know, colony collapse disorders got a lot of people nervous. There's a lot of efforts to to save the bees. But uh, it turns out there's a vast world full of many, many kinds of bees, and most people just have no idea how diverse and intricate and interesting these critters are. To learn more about bees, we tapped one of our Utah experts, um, who is a co-author of a book aptly titled... The Bees in Your Backyard? Yeah. The Bees in My Backyard? The Bees in Your Backyard. The Bees in Your Backyard. So let's jump to that interview at the Ogden Botanical Gardens now. Why don't you start off by saying your name and your title? Okay. We don't have to think of my title. I can't remember which one's first. I just changed titles. <laughs> I think it was associate, now it's assistant. I'm, okay, I'm Joe Wilson, assistant professor of biology at Utah State University in Tooele. Does that mean you got a promotion? I did, oh, just congratulations. last month. Yeah, that's why I had to think about what it was. <laughs> Thank you. And we started off this interview with one of our true-false sessions. That we like to do. So true or false, uh, there are more than 4,000 bee species in North America. True. Uh, I have to say roughly 4,000 because we don't quite know. Every time we go out and catch bees, we find more. Wow. More kinds, more species, you know. Okay. So true or false, uh, bees are threatened and disappearing in North America. Um, I think I would rate that as false because with 4,000 species, I mean, it's like saying birds are endangered. It's like, well, which bird? You know, seagulls, they're not really endangered, but there's other birds that probably are. So bees as a group of 4,000 species are not disappearing, but there are some that are uh, more threatened than others. Okay. True or false, honeybees are native? False, well, to the US. Yeah. <laughs> they are native somewhere. No, they, they, honeybees were brought to the US you know, 500 years ago or so with the, the European colonists. So there were no honeybees here before that. Okay. Uh, true or false, all bees are communal and live in hives? False. Out of the 4,000 species, roughly 1% live in hives. The rest of the 99% live alone, roughly. I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn no, that. No, I know. Everyone, everyone thinks a bee has a hive and honey and a queen and, and drones and all that stuff. All the stuff we know about bees is, is basically for one bee that doesn't, isn't from here, <laughs> the honeybee. Okay, true or false? Keeping honeybees is a good way to encourage pollination. It's, it's kind of true and false, depending on the circumstance. So honeybees are good pollinators and they're easy to keep, or I mean, relatively easy to keep, because you can put them in a box and you know, buy them online, all that stuff. Um, and they are good pollinators. So the problem is if we only focus on honeybees, we can um, exclude some of the other pollinators that are from here that are often better pollinators, depending on what we're trying to pollinate. So commercially, honeybees are mostly used I can go off on a tangent here and I'll Please, try, I'll try. Okay. okay, so commercially we use honeybees because you think about a big orchard, you know, a thousand acres of almonds or whatever. You can take honeybees in there in the spring when they bloom and then you can put them back on the truck and bring them to South Dakota when the, hunt, when the almonds are done blooming. But 
uh, some of the native bees are better pollinators than honeybees for orchards. For example, um, some studies show that what the job that 100 honeybees could do in an orchard, two native bees can do the same amount of work. Wow. And so, and especially in smaller orchards and backyard gardens, the native bees are probably better pollinators, more important pollinators. Um, the problem is, since we're familiar with honeybees and now you can, you really can't order them online, people will get honeybees for their backyard and one of those beehives has about 50,000 bees in it. And so that's going to outcompete, or those honeybees will often outcompete the native bees. They wake up earlier in the morning and they, so then when the native bees come out, and there's nothing left on the flowers for them to eat. So if you if you only focus on honeybees, you can actually be doing damage to the native bee populations. Is that so, interesting? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so what's the uh, appeal of doing that on some of these like large scale commercial operations? Because I'm sure they're only thinking about the bottom line, and they still go for these ones that aren't as efficient. Yeah. So the the the, the appeal of honeybees is you have them in a box with fifty thousand bees. You can close the box up and load it on a truck and move it where you want. Native bees, since we, like we said, ninety nine percent of them are live by themselves. Most of those live in a hole in the ground that they dig, and so if you're in a big orchard you don't have a place for those wild bees to live. Wild bees like to live in the wild or wild-ish areas. Um, they can be in our backyards and stuff, but a big commercial orchard uh, doesn't have a lot of native vegetation mixed in the orchard usually, and so there's not really areas for these wild bees to make their nests and to build up a population. Honeybees are nice and convenient because, so another problem is all these almonds again, for example. Almonds bloom for a couple weeks and then there's nothing there. Then it's just kind of a wasteland of trees with no flowers. And so wild bees need flowers to to get pollen to feed their babies. And so you'd have to have almonds mixed in with other things flowering throughout the year. And it just not, it's not a convenient way to produce a crop. So you um, did a study recently, right? About uh, most people can't even identify a bee. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I was I was interested because in Europe they had some some new postage stamps a couple of years ago celebrating their native bees, and uh, I and they with that study they showed that most people couldn't name a kind of bee that lived in the UK, which is funny because honeybees live there, so they couldn't even say honeybee. But so I thought, well, you know, the, actually Europe is kind of farther along with promoting native bee diversity than than the United States, and so my co-author and I, Olivia Carroll. Um, we thought, well, what do people here know? And so we made a survey and asked people how many bees are there. We asked them to look at pictures of different bugs and said, which ones of these are bees? And most people knew honeybees and bumblebees. You know, they're orange and they're fuzzy or they're yellow and they're fuzzy. But most people didn't know some of the other common backyard bees, sweat bees or mason bees, because they're blue or they're green, they're metallic looking. They're they, so pretty. They're super cool looking, yeah. but they just don't look like what we think a bee is. You know, the, the Honey Nut Cheerios box doesn't show us that there's green and blue bees. <laughs> So help help me or help us understand uh, how do you tell the difference between a bee or a wasp? It's tricky. So to back up to to, to understand the question, we have to back up a little bit. So bees and wasps are closely related. They're kind of cousins with each other. They're basically a big group of, a big family, and family's a hard term because scientifically they're not a family, but they're a big group of things that are related to each other, bees, wasps, and ants. And the, the main difference is bees eat pollen and nectar. They're vegetarians. 
and wasps, most of them, eat meat. They're carnivores. So wasps eat meat, which includes other bugs. Well, we don't think of bugs as meat, but if, you know, it's not a plant. So, so wasps will eat meat, bees will eat plants. And so that's basically the difference. Bees are a kind of wasp that eats plants. Mm. Uh, to tell the difference though, because bees spend most of their time with pollen and nectar, they've evolved different characteristics. They're usually hairier, um, so the hair helps them carry the pollen around. Wasps usually are not hairy. They look a little bit meaner, <laughs> but they're, they're predators. Um, so generally bees have a way to carry pollen, hairy legs or hairy bellies. Wasps don't have that. Generally, wasps have spiky legs so they can carry the dead fly that they killed or the dead caterpillar they killed. Um, but it's really hard to tell the difference often when you're looking at them on, in your backyard. Uh, if, it's, if it's collecting pollen to bring home, it's probably a bee, but sometimes you can't tell. It's not a satisfying answer, but... I think your book said too, like, uh, wasps are kind of skinny and sleek and bees are like round and fuzzy. Yeah, it's generally true. And I, I I'm making these broad, except. yeah, except for lots of them that don't look like that. I mean, there's like an exception to every rule. There's wasps that eat pollen and there's a, like one kind of bee in South America that actually eats dead animals. And so, so all the, there's exceptions to every rule, but generally, yes, bees are kind of rounder and fuzzy. Wasps are kind of hairless and skinny, generally. <laughs> Except when they're not. Except when they're not. <laughs> okay, I forgot an important true or false. Uh, true or false, a bee will die after it stings you. Ooh, that's a good true or false. It is true only for honeybees. For the other 3,999 roughly species, uh, they can sting you multiple times, um, but mostly they don't. There are actually some bees that live here that can't sting you. Their stinger's not long enough to, to sting you. So can they sting? Other things, or is it just human? To come out of their abdomen, hmm. uh, so they technically have a sting. I, it's called scientists call it a sting. Mm -hmm. So the sting is a noun and a verb, and it's confusing. Okay. So, so I hesitate to say stinger because my scientist friends will get mad. Um, <laughs> but they have a stinger, but it, it's not long enough to poke out from their body. Okay. So some people I've heard call them tickle bees because you can grab them and they will just tickle in your hand. Yeah, as long as you don't grab the wrong bee. Not that confident. <laughs> how do you, yeah, how do you tell if it's a tickle bee? Well, you grab it and see if you get stung. But uh, uh, yeah, so most of them, so the the honeybees, when they sting you, their stingers are kind of like a harpoon, and it sticks into you. And when when they fly away, it pulls their guts out and kills them. All the other bees are not like that. They can sting you lots of times, mm -hmm. but they're way more reluctant to sting you than most other things. They're too busy to sting you. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you the question that probably drives you crazy, but everyone wants to know. Tell me about killer bees. What are they? Are they on their way to Utah? So killer bees are a, a kind of honeybee. They're, they're not a different species or anything. They're just kind of different breeds of honeybee that have been accidentally bred to be mean. I mean, there's a long story to it. They are in Utah. They're in St. George probably around Kanab a little bit. They won't get farther north than Cedar City because because they're more aggressive, they don't last in the cold winters. They don't huddle together as tight as non-killer bees, as other honeybees. Um, so they won't be north of Cedar City because the winter time kills them. But even in St. George, I mean, the, it's more of a, a scare, a news hype than, than really a, a, a danger, I think. Um, they are slightly more aggressive, but they're not more toxic, and they're not that much worse than regular honeybees. So I, I should 
preface this to say I'm not a honeybee expert, <laughs> but I have friends that have worked on bees, and he said most of his beehives had killer bee DNA in it, so they're more aggressive. But you just have to be a little bit more cautious around them as a beekeeper. So it's it's not a it's not as scary as it sounds, but all beehives you should be cautious around because they don't like to be bugged. So, yeah. <laughs> Why have bees? Um, evolved to have like some sting, some don't, some die when they sting, most don't? So it's a good question. There's a lot of factors influencing the evolution of stings and the evolution of the toxicity of the venom. And I just did a, a study about the length of the stinger itself. Velvet ants have the longest stinger out of any wasp, which is another bug that I study. Mm -hmm. um, but the sting with wasps is used to to hunt. They use it to either paralyze their prey or to kill their prey. And so bees evolved from these wasp ancestors, but because they no longer have to use them to hunt, you don't have to sting a flower to get the pollen off of it, uh, the sting has changed to be mostly defensive. And so various things will eat bees, you know, lizards, if they're on the ground, they'll eat them, birds will eat bees. And so the sting has evolved to be kind of a defensive mechanism so they don't get eaten. Um, but when you're a single bee living by yourself, you're not really a big target. Uh, if, but if you're a honeybee with 50,000 sisters living with you and a bunch of little babies in there and a bunch of honey, there's a, the good, a good resource for a predator. You know, if a predator can get into a honeybee hive, they have lots of protein to eat, all the little baby bees, or lots of sugar to eat, all the honey. And so the honeybees have evolved a sting that is more potent, maybe. It, it, has, it has a more more of a punch to it because you can get stung, stung multiple times and then once you get stung that sting continues to inject venom into you because it stays in there after the bee gets brushed off and so I, it, it's a defensive thing and honeybees have more to defend I guess you could think of it that way and so there has been some interesting evolutionary stories to be told about why a honeybee can, will sting and die sacrifice itself for its colony and the other bees don't have the honeybees we see today, are they noticeably different than honeybees maybe a couple hundred years ago since there's been this, there's now a commercial industry and there's a big piece um, of collecting them? People have actually been raising honeybees for thousands of years, Okay, just not here. Uh, over in Europe, I think there's some Egyptian hieroglyphics with honeybees on them. And so people have been working with honeybees for a long time. And uh, over the last couple hundred years, I don't think there's been a noticeable difference. I guess, would there be one over thousands of years? I'm thinking of something that, you know, generations yeah. cycle so well, fast for bees. That's how killer bees came about, right? Yeah, so killer bees are the same species, but they bred an African kind of honeybee with a European type of honeybee, and we got this, this okay. unfortunate mix of, of characteristics. There actually was a fossil found of a honeybee in Nevada from, I think it was like 20 million years old. And so there were honeybees here 20 million years ago, wow. but that was a long time ago. It was, it yeah, was totally different yeah, flowers. Yeah, yeah, Nevada wasn't like Nevada <laughs> is now. Uh, there weren't people here, and that was before the mammoths and, and things. There was, it was after dinosaurs, but mm -hmm. before the Ice Age. So there were honeybees here once, but we only know that because of one fossil that was dis discovered like five or 10 years ago. Um, but it was similar enough to the modern-day honeybees that they could say, yes, this is for sure a honeybee fossil, not some other bee. Yeah, I'm kind of on a tangent here, but yeah, how much can you learn from a, a bee fossil? Uh, so so uh, you can learn quite a bit okay. because um, 
different bees carry the pollen in different ways, and honeybees are, are kind of unique. Uh, out of all of the North American bees, honeybees and bumblebees carry pollen differently. They have a different structure on their leg to carry it. And so you could tell that it was a honeybee because of that. The wings look slightly different. But you can tell, based on modern day bees, you can tell what some of the behaviors probably were. There was another bee fossil from the La Brea tar pits, which isn't 20 million years old, but it's a couple tens of thousands of years old. Um, they could tell from this bee fossil, actually they found a fossilized nest. So it's, it's a nest, it's a leaf cutter bee. So it cuts pieces of leaves and brings it to a hole and makes wallpaper out of that. So anyway, they found one of these fossilized nests and they could tell what it was doing. I think they might have been, been able to even estimate what plants it was feeding on. I mean, there's lots of interesting fossil connections because you can look at the fossilized pollen and look at the fossilized bee parts and you can put two and two together to see what was there. But I don't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so now we got out of the way that our native bees don't live in colonies. Um, can you explain the life cycle of a native bee? What, what is it usually like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a native bee will start with the sp in the spring. Mm -hmm. In the spring, a, a bee comes out of the ground. And if it's a female bee, it mates with a male that has come out of the ground. And then it starts working by digging a nest, if it's a ground nesting bee, which most are. So it digs a hole in the ground you know between six inches to a couple feet down at the bottom of that hole it makes little side tunnels little rooms and so at, after it's dug its hole it goes and collects pollen and nectar brings that back to the nest and fills each room with a, a little loaf of pollen and nectar i call it a, a pollen cake it's just a mixer mixture of pollen and nectar kind of like play-doh mm -hmm. uh, so puts that in each room and lays an egg on it and then closes up the room with dirt and it, when it's filled all of its rooms it fills in the nest and flies away and dies. So it's adult life cycle, I mean lifespan is probably a couple weeks to maybe a month and a half. And so then those babies in the nest, they're, they're an egg sitting on pollen. They hatch as a larva, looks like a little maggot kind of. It eats the pollen and nectar, this is all underground in the dark, eats the pollen and nectar loaf that was left for it. And then that takes a couple of weeks, then it spins a cocoon and turns into a pupa. And usually it stops right there and it will kind of put its life cycle on pause until the next spring. Hmm. And so it stays underground as this pupa for eight months or longer. And then in the spring, when certain environmental conditions are right, it could be the temperature, it could be the moisture in the soil, it, it turns itself back on and goes from a pupa and turns into an adult. And then that adult bee will crawl out of the ground and start the life cycle again. So it's kind of this yearly life cycle two-thirds of it are underground as a larva or a pupa, and then one-third or less are as an adult flying around. Got a jet flying overhead. <laughs> be my little baby bumblebee. Buzz around, buzz around, keep a buzzing around. And bring home all the honey love to me. Little bee, little bee, little bumblebee. Let me spend the happy hours roving with you amongst the flowers. And when we Someone, you know, looking in their backyard, how, you know, they're used to thinking it was bees as like these yellow things with black stripes, but uh, how can they identify bees? Um, like what are some common bees they might see and what should you be looking for? Yeah, so there's a lot of kinds of bees that people can find in their backyard. What I usually recommend is go sit down by some flowers and just kind of wait there. 
because if you just walk by you might not notice anything but when you sit down and wait you start seeing little things crawl around and you might notice a sweat bee for example sweat bee is a, a weird name for a bee but they they're little teeny bees one of the most common bees in north america and uh they have a habit in the summertime of landing on you when you're sweating and drinking your sweat oh. probably for the minerals so people call them sweat bees okay. lots of different kinds of sweat bees but they're about a quarter an inch long or, sh or smaller oh. kind of a shiny grayish green color and they'll be in everybody's yard from downtown ogden to out out in the the west desert you know no matter where you're up in park city or, or wherever there's going to be sweat bees all over the country so once you start noticing that there's other kinds of bees out there, you'll start seeing lots of, of a, a new world opens up in your backyard. And so sweat bees are really common. You'll also see mason bees, which are metallic blue or green, and they kind of zoom around the flowers pretty fast. I like those ones. They're my favorite too. They're really pretty. <coughs> Excuse me. So I guess the, the, the advice I would give is find some flowers and just sit down and wait for a little while. You know, bring an umbrella for shade or whatever and uh, just watch for bees and you'll see them. What can someone do if they, if they like bees and they want to encourage bee, or bee diversity or populations in their yard? Uh, bees need two things. They need food, which is flowers, and they need nesting space. So most of the bees in North America nest in the ground, so we need to leave some ground for the bees. And that's, they like bare dirt in a sunny spot. And so a really well manicured yard is not the best for bees. They like a little bit of messy, wild stuff. So, I mean, you can have most of your yard be, you know, the grass and the stuff that we like, but leave part of your flower garden just a patch of dirt. Or instead of putting mulch between your flowers or ground cloth between your flowers, leave some bare dirt and just pull the weeds out by hand and you'll see that bees start nesting there. In between my flowers at home, I have uh, sweat bees nesting in between the flowers. And so we, we need to leave dirt and we need to plant flowers. There's lots of kinds of flowers that attract bees, but the bees in the spring go to certain flowers, the bees in the summer go to certain flowers, the bees in the fall go to certain flowers. So we want to plant a variety of flowers, different sizes and colors and shapes, and, and different flowers attract different bees. There's lots of lists online. I think Utah State Extension has lists of bee attractive flowers. In my book, I have mm -hmm. bee attractive flowers because not all flowers are, are good. Roses, bees don't really like the, the cultivated roses that we have. They like wild roses, but there's, there's so many kinds of bees and different flowers attract different ones. How do you know if a bee's nesting? What, what should you look for? Um, if you see a bee digging in the ground, it's probably nesting. Often you can see, so when a bee has pollen on its legs, usually where it's carrying them, it's kind of noticeable because you have a kind of a grayish bee with bright yellow legs. If, it's, if you see it hovering around the ground, probably it's trying to find its, the entrance to its nest. Sometimes it's kind of hard to find that when you're nesting a bunch of, you know, among grass or dirt or rocks or whatever. So if you see a bee hovering on the ground, if you stop and wait, you'll probably see it go down into a little hole. It might have looked like an ant hole, but it's a bee nest. Um, and that's the best way to tell if it's nesting on the ground. You can also build, they call them bee hotels or bee nest boxes in your backyard. It's just a piece of wood and you drill a bunch of holes in it, or you can take some reeds and bundle them all together and the, the non-ground nesting bees will nest in that. And it's fun because these, these solitary bees are really not aggressive at all. I can stand six inches away from the nest with my five-year-old and we just sit and watch the bees work and the bees ignore us and we get to enjoy watching them.
So bees that don't nest in the ground, what are they nesting in? Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, I usually call them twig nesting bees or cavity nesting bees. So uh, these other, I don't know how many percentage, 20% of bees roughly, uh, they find a pre-existing hole. In, in, out in the wild, they'll look for a, an old tree stump or a dead tree, and there's usually holes in it from beetles that have dug into the tree, and they'll find one of these holes and manipulate it a little bit. Like I, you know, they'll line it with wallpaper made of leaves, or they'll chew out the edges a little bit so it's smoother, but they find pre-existing holes. And so that's why if we drill holes in a piece of wood, they'll find those and move in. It's that simple. Yeah. And the, there, there's lots of instructions online, but if the hole is more than six inches deep, it's better for the bees because it gives them more room to make their, their nest cells. But. Well, I was gonna change the subject a bit if you want to keep. How did you become interested in bees? That's what I was gonna ask. It's a, a good question. And uh, there's, there's lots of different versions of the story. So I've always been into biology, but with bees, so I used to think I wanted to study like wolves or bears, you know, stuff that everybody thinks of with mm -hmm. biology. Um, yeah, all the way up into college, I thought I wanted to do something like that. Then when I, I think it was my first or second semester of college, I, I met a girl and she had just got back from a summer in the Grand Staircase National Monument. And she had spent all summer catching bees. This was her summer job w with uh, a master's student. And so I liked this girl and I thought that sounds super cool. So I started volunteering in the lab that she worked in. And that was the USDA bee biology lab. It's called something different now. It's the um, pollinating insect research unit or something. It's up in Logan, Utah. And so I volunteered there. I got a job the next summer working in the Grand Staircase catching bees with that same girl. Amazing. And now that girl is my wife and I study bees. Aww. Actually, the co-author of my book was that master student that we were really? working for. He used to be my boss and now we work together. So I realized though, studying these bees, because I didn't, I didn't realize there was so much beauty and diversity, right? I just thought of honeybees and bumblebees like everyone else. But when I started catching these bees down there and watching the bees, I realized how exciting they are. You could try to study wolves, but, or you could just study bees and get the same excitement, or bears, or study bees and get the same excitement. Because within bees, you get all of that kind of uh, intrigue and mystique that you'd watch in a nature show. It's just all happening at a microscopic level. <laughs> Why do you think so? Like the general public knows so little about this amazing diversity of bees. That's a good question. I don't know why they do. Everybody seems to know that bees are important, but they just don't rec realize what bees are. And it's probably probably because they are. I don't know. It's probably partly my fault as a as a bee scientist. I haven't done a good enough job of letting people know how cool they are. Well, you wrote a very good book. Well, thank, thank you. Uh, and that was part of why we wrote the book is because we realized that people don't know anything about bees. I mean, we started seeing a lot of news stories about bees and they were either showing a picture of a fly or they were only talking about honeybees. But I think that it's because it's easy to overlook them when they're, you know, a quarter of an inch long or, or smaller. And so, and also, I mean, it's no, there's no cartoons about these little sweat bees or there's no, you know, cereal boxes celebrating the blue or the green bees. And so just culturally, we've been tied to honeybees for so long. I mean, when the first European settlers came, they brought honeybees. When the Mormon settlers came to Utah, they had honeybees with them. They named the state Deseret after honeybees. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just been part of our culture for so long. Plus honey's really good. 
and the other bees don't make honey. So, oh, I wouldn't climb this tree if a pool flew like a bee, but I wouldn't be a bear then, so I guess I wouldn't care then. Bears love honey, and I'm a poo bear, so I do care, so I'll climb there. I'm so rumbly in my tumbling. Time for something, for something sweet to eat. Do you have a personal favorite bee? Um, I have a personal favorite group of bees because with 4,000 species, how do you name one? Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of lump all these group of bees together. Uh, the genus is Perdida. Perdida, like it's the, the dog's name on 101 Dalmatians. Maybe people say Perdida. But uh, Perdida are a, a group of little teeny bees. They're the smallest bees in North America. And the smallest one is, I think it's like two millimeters long. Like a mosquito? Yeah, or smaller. It's like George Washington's nose on a quarter. Really small. Uh, I like these. They only live in North America, mostly in the deserts, northern Mexico, s southwestern United States. 600 species of them. Most of them are picky eaters. They're floral specialists. They only go to a, to a certain kind of flower. And so, uh, but they're just so small and cute and pretty that I just, I really like them. So Perdida as a group, we call them fairy bees. They don't really have a official common name, but they're like little fairies that float around flowers. They're so small, they look like gnats. And so like a fairy, they um, are, are almost invisible. I assume fairies are almost invisible. I should show you. <laughs> I've never seen one. So. That'll be our next podcast. <laughs> let me show you a, yeah, let me show you a picture of a, of a fairy bee so you can see how cute and little they are. Isn't Perdita Spanish for lost? Yeah, it is. is and so we're not sure. We've, we did some research to try to find out what all these genus names of bees mean and in our book we try to explain it all and it means lost with the latin uh root to it so it could be that because they're so small that they're like lost among the landscape or it could be that they're lost in insect collections because they're so small <laughs> um, yeah so we're not really sure but it has that lost uh root to it so here's the I mean, this isn't good for recording, but this is the smallest bee in North America. It's one of the little perditas oh on a gosh. on a quarter. It is very elegant looking. Yeah, so that's the female. Male is where's the male? That's the male next to the quarter, a little bit smaller. So it's pretty little, and there's lots of kinds of perditas that are pretty. This is one with pollen on its leg, Ooh. but they're just little and they're cute pretty. and pretty. Yeah, I really like those ones but there's not much known about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, out of the 600 species, most of them, we don't really know how their nests are built or what flowers they like to, to collect pollen from. We know they all let nest in the ground and they're all really small. I realized when I asked you about the life cycle of a native bee, we just mostly stuck to female bees. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, male bees, what do they do? <laughs> uh, not much. <laughs> so in the spring, when the bees dig themselves out of the ground, the male bees come out first actually, about a week before the female bees, and they fly around and wait for the females. When the females come out, they'll mate, and then the male bees are basically done with their life. There's nothing else for them to do. They don't dig a nest, they don't help bring pollen to the nest. They, After they've mated, they just kind of hang out, drink nectar from flowers. There's not even anywhere for them to sleep. They don't make a nest, so often you'll find males sleeping inside a flower, or sometimes a bunch of males will come get together on like a dead twig. They bite onto the twig and fall asleep. So they, wow. they really don't do very much. They can't sting. Uh, they don't pollinate. Well, they pollinate a little bit by accident, but they don't gather, they don't collect pollen. So yeah, they're not, they're not, they don't play a big role in the lives of the female bees after they've mated. 
So an adult male about a couple, a couple weeks. Yeah, usually they live shorter than a female, a couple weeks, sometimes longer than that. Some females will mate multiple times. Mm -hmm. Other females will mate once, and then that's it. So it, it all depends on the, the species of bees. Do the males mate multiple times? Uh, they probably try to. They, most of them are capable of it. Um, and usually it's a, there's a, a really nice video online, I think the BBC did it, of some Australian bees. The males were flying around waiting for p females to come out. These are ground nesting bees. When the female comes out, there's so many males that are wanting to mate, they get into this big fight. Oh. And uh, some of them don't last through the fight. <laughs> because wow. there's a lot of pressure to be the one that mates. Nature is violent. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it shows bees with their heads off and, <laughs> and stuff after the fight. How does a bee... How does a bee kill another bee? Uh, they have they have pretty big mandibles somewhere. So do you mostly mostly specialize in North American bees, or do you travel all over? No, I haven't traveled much yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't mind it, but yeah. there's so many in North America yeah. that it 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 doesn't leave me a lot of time for the other ones. There's actually more bees in North America than like in the tropics. Um, Utah specifically is like a hot spot for bee diversity. Utah has about 1,100 species. Uh, the entire eastern U.S. east of the Mississippi has about 700. So we have, you know, one and a half times as many bees in Utah than the entire eastern U.S. And this, so the Mormon pioneers aren't too far off in embracing the bee as no, their exactly. symbol. The beehive state might be off. One. We can just say that the bee state. <laughs> yeah. What is it about Utah that... That's a good question, and there's probably a variety of things. Utah first has a lot of different habitats, right? We have the high mountains, we have the foothills, we have the, a couple different kinds of deserts. St. George's Mojave Desert, we have the Great Basin Desert out in the west, and then we have the Colorado Plateau over Moab and Zion and all those places. And so all of those provide different habitat for bees and support different kinds of bees. And then even within those, you go over to the Grand Staircase and you have the low canyons that are, you know, the red rock and the beautiful canyons. You have those plateaus that have juniper forests. So we have so many different habitats and bees in general around the world are more diverse in the deserts. And we're not exactly sure why, but it could be a mixture of things. There's lots of kinds of flowers in the deserts, which is good for bees. Lots of different kinds of soil types. Some bees only nest in the sand, some only nest in the clay. And so it has all these little micro habitats that bees have diversified into. Uh, also, Utah is pretty neat compared to the eastern United States because we have two bee seasons. In the spring, we have a, a peak of bee diversity like in May. And then in July, there's not that many kinds of bees out. Then again, in August, we have another peak of bee diversity. So the spring bees are gonna be totally different than the late summer bees. And the Eastern US just has one kind of peak of diversity. So we almost, we have room for twice as many kinds of bees with our climate over here. How yeah. Is we, climate change threatening bees at all? Uh, that's a question that people ask periodically. And it's a tricky answer because um, I mean, it'd be similar with birds, right? Is climate change affecting birds? Yes, but in lots of different ways. You know, it'll affect a bird that only lives in the mountains in certain ways. It'll affect a bird that lives in the deserts in certain ways. And it's the same for bees. Some bees might actually expand their range because they mm. like the hot, dry climates. Other bees will uh, become more restricted because of, of warming climates. Uh, some of the threats from climate change to bees is bees time their emergence in the spring with the flowers that they prefer and it with climates changing that that timing could be off maybe the flowers would come out before the bees or the bees would come out before the flowers and that can cause some some problems it's it's not something that has been thoroughly studied because it's kind of a hard thing to study but it, there's a potential there for it so climate change 
will affect bees differently. Just like most things when you're talking about 4,000 <laughs> kinds of bees. So kind of building off that, are you able to get good ideas of what bee populations are like? I'm thinking if you have 1,100 species and some of them are two millimeters long somewhere in the West Desert, like how, how easy is it to track bees and like how they're doing? Their, yeah. Like to gauge the health of the population maybe? Yeah. It's actually really tricky. And it's not just because of all the diversity or the size, but some bees, uh, so if a bee is timing its, its emergence in the spring with the flowers, as we see in the desert, sometimes you have a really good bloom of flowers and sometimes you have a really bad year for flowers. Like last year was the super bloom down in the Mojave Desert, so everybody went down there to take pictures. Um, bees don't wanna come out if it's a bad year for flowers. And so they do this thing, we call it bet hedging, when not all the bees that were that pupated that winter will come out the next spring sometimes they can actually stay underground for years like four or five years underground kind of in suspended animation and they'll only come out when whatever the environmental cues are for them uh, tell them that it's going to be a good year so that means you could collect bees in the same spot every year and get different things every year because some of those bees might be waiting Wait, waiting out that season and not coming out of the ground. And so, so it's hard to tell how, how good a bee's population is doing unless you collect in the same place for lots of years in a row. A study that Olivia, my friend and co-author, did down on the Grand Staircase, she collected for four years, and from year to year she's got really different results in what bees were there. So you have to do a, a kind of a long-term sampling to know. It's also tricky for measuring bee declines. How can you tell if a population is going down if from year to year it's so kind of random and variable? And also it's hard because we don't have historic data. Like if we were going to collect here in Ogden next year, we have nothing to compare that to. What was it like 50 years ago? Well, I have no idea. Or 100 years ago, I have no idea. And so we don't have the, the data to ask those questions yet, but it's definitely something that people are working on. So I've heard this rumor on social media that you should not pull up your dandelions early in the spring because that's what bees are, the early emergent bees are eating. Uh, it's kind of true and kind of not. So dandelions aren't native to North America either. And so the North American wild bees did not evolve with dandelions. And so to say that dandelions are their only or the best food source in the spring is somewhat misleading because 500 years ago they were eating something else. There wasn't dandelions. Dandelions are a decent food source for several kinds of bees. Um, but willow is a, a native shrub or tree uh, that also blooms early in the spring. And there's a lot of bees that only go to willow and so my advice to people is I don't mind if they leave their dandelions <laughs> I also don't mind if they pull out their dandelions uh, as long as they're leaving other food sources there if we walk around the gardens today we'll see other native plants that also bloom in the spring that can support native bees so you don't have to have a kind of an invasive weed like a dandelion which is fine for bees but there's other options like flocks or there's a, a milk vetch Astragalus is the genus of flowers. There's lots of wild flowers you can plant, but dandelions are okay too. <laughs> Should we walk around? Sure. After a sit-down chat with Joe, we got up to go look around the garden and see what we could find in the world of bees. Um, started off pretty quick with some yellow buzzing things that I'd seen flying around behind him while we were interviewing him. Next to the, uh, Next to grill? A, a grill, yeah. Turns out they weren't bees. 
Yeah, so these are the wasps that everybody, so everybody thinks bees are, I mean, when I first, the first interview I ever did was in Texas at a little morning news station, and it was about my book, The Bees in Your Backyard, and the host totally threw me off because she said, oh, bees in your backyard, that sounds scary. And I thought, <laughs> that's not what, that's, <laughs> it's not scary, but it's because people see these wasps and they get stung by the, they sit on their picnic bench and they get stung on their leg and they hate them and they say, oh, the bees stung me. But these are paper wasps and they make their little paper honeycomb looking nest underneath your deck or your picnic table and uh, they are mean. And so... So if you see one of those paper hives, it's not bees. No, so that's a, a good a good point. We we often associate bees with like a paper mache bag hanging from a tree, like Winnie a Winnie the, the Pooh. Pooh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, those are, no bees make paper. There's a kind of wasp that makes those paper mache bags. They're like hornets. And uh, then there's these other paper wasps that make a, a paper looking honeycomb structure. But those, they're, they're social wasps that are predators and they're not bees. They're the ones that come to your barbecue and try to eat your hamburger because your hamburger is meat and they will, mm. they will they eat like it. Meat. They yeah. do. And we mentioned before between bees and wasps, but I know I've heard the other one used all interchangeably as bees, wasps, yellow jackets, hornets, all oh, yeah. the same. What's the difference? So bees are the, are their own group, right? Mm. Uh, hornets are a kind of wasp. Yellow jackets are a kind of wasp also. We just kind of categorize these wasps as different things, but they're all different kinds of wasps. Uh, the hornets and yellow jackets are a social wasp. And then there's a lot of wasps that are solitary and live in the ground like, like many bees. Do you guys want to walk back in here? Yeah, um, there's probably more. I know there's a lot kind of along the trail here that could that. be. Yeah. I'm up for whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's like, even these like yellow, tree will have bees on it too. We can walk this way um, and do a loop or something. Sure. Uh, there's nothing on those ones. So I asked you how we can encourage bees in our backyard, but how do we discourage wasps? It's hard. Uh, especially these paper wasps, they are there and hard to get rid of. Discouraging wasps can be uh, maybe one of the most effective things is reducing places for them to build their nests. These paper, a lot of the paper wasps like to build their nests in little cavities and they use wood, they chew up wood to make their paper. I think these are still these paper wasps, yeah. So, that one's a honeybee. Uh, a lot of times you'll see the wasps hovering around the plants like this because they're searching for prey, caterpillars or grasshoppers or other things. Wasps are pretty good because they're pest control uh -huh. and so they're killing some of these pest insects. Um, they're just a little bit mean. Yeah. There's one flying around <laughs> my head, isn't there? You can knock down their nests if you want to avoid pesticides. You can spray them with soapy water, which is which will kill them also. But there's really no way to to win the battle. This way? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. So usually when I'm catching bees, I spend a lot of time staring at flowers because <laughs> Sometimes you have to stand here and wait for a little while to see if there's anything happening. Uh, bee, bee watching, like bird watching, is, is fun and it's a little bit easier than bird watching in some ways because if you see a bee and it flies away, it's most likely going to come back to the flower. But a bird doesn't necessarily come back to the same bush that you saw it in. Um, so if you saw a bee and you want to know what it was, you can often wait and it'll probably come back. I'm going to see what this bee is right here. So this one's a honeybee. You can see that it's a little bit more orange colored. 
fuzzier than the last one. Yeah, honeybees actually even have hair on their eyeballs, which Whoa. most of the native bees don't. So if you happen to see a honeybee super close <laughs> and see his hairy eyes. What kind of response do you get when you tell people you study bees? Uh, the most, so it's funny, it's, things have changed over the last 20 years. It, people used to always say, how many times do you get stung? Yeah. And that was the first thing they associated with bees. Now most people say, oh, how are the bees doing? Or why are the bees disappearing? Or, or stuff like that. Uh -huh. So it's kind of, it's encouraging because people know that they're more than just stinging bugs. But, but they, they are mostly basing this on the news stories. They've heard that bees are disappearing. You know, there's catchy titles like a world without bees, which is, Sounds impossible. Yeah, it is. That's what I was going to say. It's so highly adapted. It's like, yeah, in a world without... There's 20,000 kinds of bees in the world. Uh, and you're not going to lose all of them. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about bees. <laughs> so I guess the tragedy of colony collapse disorder continues is that we're just going to lose honey. But pollination is, itself is will yeah. continue. Uh, well, it's, it's a, a mixed bag because our agriculture system, especially in the U.S., is built so much, is reliant on honeybees because we have these big monocultures of crops. If we had more of a system and we have smaller localized farms that we got most of our food from, uh, we, would, we would do better. Mm -hmm. But because we have these huge farms with just one kind of crop, those really rely on honeybees. And so food could get more expensive, honey could get more expensive, but we're not gonna die. That one's a wasp. It's probably chewing a Stop piece of that grass. Stop psyching that wasp, you're right. Make paper. So often the flowers that we like in our yard, like lilacs, mm -hmm. they smell really good and they're pretty, but they're not a great bee flower. Like not a lot of bees will visit lilacs. Or the rose gardens, not a lot of bees wanna visit the rose gardens. They kinda like the, we the weedy plants that we kill. <laughs> good to know. I know you... Native plants are probably a really good idea for yeah. encouraging native bees. Exactly. They're often some of the best, but there's, a, there's other ones you can get at the nursery that are still pretty good. I know you mentioned before wanting to like spread out time frames of flowers, yeah. but even within that, are there specific varieties that are like, this is an awesome one to choose? One of my favorite ones, and I don't know if you can buy it at nurseries or not, but it grows all over Utah, all over the West. It's a globe mallow. Have you seen that? The orange, and they, they, they bloom for a long time. There's a ton of bees that only visit globe mallow, and there's other generalist bees that just really like globe mallow. It's a loud road, huh? Yeah. It's a lot of bees, though. That was a... I did get a little bee. Let's see where to go. That's an ant. It's in here somewhere. There it is. Oh, that one's a little boy bee. How can you tell? Uh, it's, it's kind of tricky, but uh, boys have one more segment in their antenna, so they have slightly longer antennas. Mm. They often also have white or light-colored faces. This one you'll see when I get it out of here. It has kind of a white face, which is kind of telling that it's a boy. Or you could just look at bees for lots and lots of years and <laughs> get used to it. You can see how its face, if it holds still, has a little bit of yellow on it or white. No, let me just try to pull it out because it can't sting. I would never would have seen that insect and thought, oh, that's a bee. Yeah. 
I would have failed your your study. Yeah, it's okay. Seventy um, percent of the people we asked couldn't didn't know if they were bees, and we, it was a biased study because we asked people on Facebook, uh -huh. and most of the people that I know on Facebook like bees. I mean, you know, I kind of surround myself uh -huh. with it's the the whole echo chamber of social media. So it's probably much worse. Yeah, it's probably much worse. I don't know. Look how small that one is. Yeah. Oh, that one is one of the green ones. Let me get is it. Is it? It's yes. just a, a boy and it's not quite as greeny green as some of the other ones, but it still has a little mustache. Let's see if I got the green thing in there. See how it's kind of almost gold green yeah, colored? Yeah, pretty. So that one's really cool. That is a pretty bee. Those are the kind, or these and their relatives are really good at pollinating fruit orchard crops. Oh. This is the kind that we can say that two of these can do the same job as a hundred honeybees. It's so tiny. Yeah, it's cool. This one has like little green eyes. It stops moving. Wow. Very pretty. Let's see if we can hear it make a noise. Get that guy out of there. Cool, we found one. There yeah. we go. Success, now I can go home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, Ben, I had the advantage of having read Joe Wilson's book before we met him and did the podcast, but you didn't know what you were I jumping into. <laughs> so tell me, what were your impressions? What did you learn? Were you amazed by how many kinds of bees there are? I was. I, mean, I guess I knew there were a lot of different kinds, but not that many. And the thing Owls. that really got me was him talking about the ones that are like measured in millimeters. These mm. really tiny ones. And we found some small ones, but knowing that there are ones specifically in Utah even that are drastically, drastically smaller than that. Things that I would not consider bees. Did you know they were so colorful? I think I knew there were green ones. Oh. And that was about the extent of it. I didn't know I didn't the know. range beyond that. Yeah. Um, Actually, I went hiking in between when we did this interview and uh, right now and saw a couple bees up on Malins. Ah, now you know and I was like, oh, those are bees. <laughs> They're not just flies. And yeah, so I'm, I'm impressed. I learned a lot. I definitely keep some bare dirt open in my backyard now to encourage bees. Yes, that's why I keep bare dirt in my backyard too. And now, <laughs> now sometimes when I see a gnat, I wonder, is that a perdita? but it's probably usually a nap. We'll but see. Hopefully you guys learned some things about bees too, and you'll be a little more informed. Mm -hmm. And if you want to keep learning about bees, again, Joe Wilson has that book, The Bees in Your Backyard. Check it out. It's super interesting. Thanks for listening. I'm Leah Larson. I'm Benjamin Zach. This is Outstanding in a Field. I've got a dozen cousin bees, but I want to to be my baby bumblebee. Buzz, buzz.